Hello, and welcome to Fraudied Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, a Senior Managing Director in FTI's Forensic and Litigation Consulting segment, where I assist clients and their counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. In this episode, we're going to explore bulletproofing your FCPA acquisition, due diligence, and merger integration, and the government's recent revisions to the FCPA Resource Guide and Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Program's guidance. Gone are the days when potential bribery and corruption risk of an acquisition can afford to be something assessed at the 11th hour or not at all. Successor liability stemming from undiscovered bribery activity can give rise to devastating financial consequences. Joining me today is Skadden Arps partner and FCPA luminary, Gary DiBianco. Gary's practice focuses on advising senior management and boards of directors faced with complex government or internal investigations. He's also a core member of Skadden's Washington, D.C. government enforcement defense practice, where he strategically guides and defends clients against their most challenging enforcement and investigation-related inquiries. Welcome, Gary. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Scott, and it's great to be with you. So, Gary, recently the DOJ updated two pretty important reference documents you know, intended to provide guidance to compliance officers and senior leadership, the FCPA Resource Guide and the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, both of which include information about mergers and acquisitions and post-merger integration. What do you consider to be the key takeaways from those two documents regarding FCPA acquisition due diligence? So, first, I think it's helpful that the DOJ and the SEC have taken a consistent approach over time, or at least they've sought to take a fairly consistent approach over time. And in the the latest guidance, they are reinforcing the core approach that risk-based due diligence is appropriate in their view for a company considering acquisition of another company. I do think it's important to carefully take into account the risks of success or liability as you highlighted at the outset. There's some comforting language in the guidance, and then there's some language, I think, to be wary of. So the guidance says that the DOJ, most of the time, will only impose successor liability where it's legally appropriate to do so. That is, where there was liability for the predecessor business. You know, helpfully, they confirm in this most recent guidance, the position that's been the case over the last several years, which is acquisition of a U.S. company where there was not jurisdiction previously does not create pre-acquisition jurisdiction. So if you have a non-U.S. entity that was not subject to DOJ jurisdiction, the, the conduct that may have occurred before the acquisition is not going to be brought into the remit of the Justice Department solely because that company was acquired by a company over which the DOJ has jurisdiction. And the guidance also talks about the acquirer taking careful steps to diligence FCPA risks, remediate anything that's necessary upon acquisition and integrate a compliance program. And the DOJ says that if a company does that, they'll try not to take enforcement action against the acquirer. What the recent guidance says is more often the DOJ and SEC have pursued enforcement action against the predecessor company rather than the acquiring company. That's got a helpful side and an unhelpful side. The helpful side, of course, is that the acquiring company 
can have some guarantees, which we'll talk about, about things it can do. On the other hand, it shouldn't be taken as an indication that the problem, if there was one, will just go away. The DOJ and the SEC will continue to pursue action against the predecessor entity. And the guidance also says that if the predecessor entity is a wholly owned unit of the acquirer, they may take post-acquisition action against that entity. So what that means is there may still be liability for pre-acquisition conduct. And while it may not be technically imposed on the acquirer as a reputational matter, the costs of it will be imposed on the business that was acquired. And there are a couple of examples here that are cited in the guidance. One of them is GE's acquisition of the Alstom's power division in 2014-2015. There, GE and Alstom, the French company, began negotiating in 2014 at a time when the Alstom power was subject to an FCPA investigation. The matter ended up being settled by Alstom for three quarters of a billion dollars approximately in December 2014. And then the GE acquisition transaction closed in early 2015. So GE is you know, happily not uh, the subject of that enforcement action, but certainly the cost of that FCPA investigation was borne by that Alstom business. And certainly it must have been taken into account in the discussions around the transaction. And similarly, going back several years, um, the DOJ had taken action against predecessor entities that were still wholly owned subsidiaries after they were purchased. That was the case in both the York International Settlement and the Latin Node Settlement. So I, the, I think one of the takeaways here is, and we'll talk about several of the steps that an acquiring company can take to minimize its own liability, but it's, it's extremely important for the acquiring company to also have a realistic understanding of what the potential costs of an enforcement action may be, because an action, just because it's not of the acquirer, doesn't mean that it's not going to be costly as to the entity that is bought. So those are some really great takeaways from those guidance documents. It actually kind of gives rise to you know, a potential pitfall of the category of clients hearing what they want to hear, because under that uh, scenario that you described where you know, the DOJ isn't going to retroactively apply jurisdiction if it wasn't an FCPA violation pre-transaction, it's important to emphasize, but the second you close, you know, that you know, sort of brings it into the jurisdiction of the FCPA. And if you allow things to continue you know, post-close and you're not vigilant in rooting out the behavior, it now is a violation of the FCPA or could be by virtue of the fact that you're a U.S. publicly traded entity or there's other ways that the U.S. can assert jurisdiction. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And that is a key point because, you know, while there may be pragmatic and prudential reasons that the DOJ and SEC might give an acquirer a grace period, you know, following the closing date, that's not a legal defense to any conduct that happened after that date. And so it's another reason why, as we'll get into, it's very important in the diligence process to understand the FCPA risks so that, as you're suggesting, on day one, there can be assurances that the proper controls are in place going forward. So the guidance documents each, I'd say, rightly acknowledge that pre-acquisition due diligence may not always be possible or may not provide you know, sufficient access to data 
you know, business records or personnel. You know, certainly it's been my experience advising companies on the front end that there are limits to what a seller may make available. You know, so under that very common scenario, how does that then impact post-merger integration? This has been a reality of the marketplace for several years now, given that auction type transactions have become more and more popular. And so the framework here that companies look to is the guidance that the DOJ released in opinion procedure release 0802, which is commonly known as the Halliburton release. It's from 2008, and it related to a situation in which Halliburton was bidding on assets of a company called Expro, and there was not going to be an opportunity to do pre-acquisition due diligence. And so Halliburton took advantage of the DOJ's procedure where it essentially set out for the Justice Department what it intended to do post-closing and said that if we do this, can you give us assurances that you won't take enforcement action against us? And just as a side note, this Halliburton was subject to an active FCPA investigation at that time that was subsequently settled. This is all a matter of public record. That acquisition didn't close, but the the guidance that came out was adopted in the diligence and compliance community. And it's been reaffirmed to some degree in deferred prosecution agreements when the DOJ has set out its expectations for what companies will have as part of their compliance program when they're doing M&A diligence and acquisitions. So the core of The process that comes out of the Halliburton release and these deferred prosecution agreements is a commitment by the acquirer to do post-closing diligence, you know, relatively quickly or as as quickly as is practicable first. Second, to implement the acquirer's anti-corruption compliance program at the newly acquired company and whatever other compliance programs and internal controls would be appropriate to ensure continued compliance with laws. And then third, the DOJ guidance, at least in the Halliburton release, talked about a commitment to disclose to the DOJ any issues that are discovered during that post-close diligence. And in the Halliburton release, all of this is supposed to happen within 180 days of closing. In the deferred prosecution agreements that have been negotiated subsequently, there's a longer period of time that's given. So The thinking would be, you're very safe if you can do this within six months. You're okay if you could do it within 12 months, and you should certainly get it done within 18 months. Now, the first two items there, post-close diligence and implementing your own compliance program, uncontroversial. The third, uh, voluntary disclosure to the Justice Department and or the SEC, I think much more controversial, much more fact-dependent subject to very careful consideration by a company and its board. Because on the one hand, the advantage of disclosing an issue that a company finds during post-close diligence is that the acquirer will be viewed as a good corporate citizen and able to distance itself from that conduct. The downside is there will almost certainly be expenses associated with bringing that to the attention of the government and the government's follow-up questions And as we've been discussing, the government may well decide to pursue an action in relation to that pre-existing conduct. And while that may not be considered, quote, successor liability per se, 
an action against this former business that is now owned by the acquirer is going to cost the acquirer money one way or another, even if it's, you know, charged against a wholly owned subsidiary or a particular business unit. Yeah, I remember when that opinion procedure release came out, you know, and back when there wasn't nearly as much, you know, guidance on FCPA compliance as there is now, it became for a while the the blueprint and the Rosetta Stone for decoding, you know, anti-corruption compliance and and the government's expectations because there, there was no case law, there wasn't much in the way of, you know, kind of unified guidance. And that was the case for the next four years until the FCPA resource guide, you know, as you say, still a very important document though, because it's pretty detailed, as I recall. It is. And again, it has some upsides and some downsides. It definitely takes into account that the acquirer will have a lot more access to the target's business after close than it would have before. And so the expectations of post-close diligence go a level deeper than what could be done pre-close. And I mean, you'll be familiar with this from the forensic work and the investigation work that you do. So, you know, pre-acquisition, you may get access to general ledger information, accounts, backup transaction documents, but almost certainly you're not going to get access to employee emails, for example, or, you know, you probably won't, you may get some management interviews, but you're probably not going to get fact investigation, confrontational interviews of employees. Well, post-close, you have access to everything and everybody if you, if you bought the company. And so there is then an expectation that you could go deeper in your diligence if you find something and you could do an email review or you could do confrontational interviews or you could do both of those things. And so while there is this blueprint, it doesn't mean that it's something that a company should follow in every case because it, it may be if you have the pre-acquisition access overall that may be a more efficient way of doing the diligence those are some great points thank you gary you know many non-us companies particularly those that you know fall below a, a certain revenue size they may not have much in the way of an anti-corruption you know, compliance program in terms of you know, how it's documented or even to the extent that there is a robust program in place. So does due diligence in, under that scenario then become more of an anti-corruption risk assessment when that's the case? I think that's a really interesting framing and, and it's one that I've had clients ask. Um, you know, essentially they say, well, listen, this is a, this is a startup. There's not going to be an anti-corruption policy, there's not going to be a compliance department. Are we really going to learn anything about the business? And I think you're framing it as, as a risk assessment. To some degree, that's, that's right. I also think that a risk assessment is, is very valuable in those instances. And I do think that even where a company has not put into place something that they call anti-corruption policy, or they haven't talked about anti-corruption controls historically, you can still get meaningful information about risks and compliance. So, and just to be a little bit practical about that, it it helps to go back to, you know, the idea that underlies most corruption investigations, which is for, for a bribe to be paid, a company somehow has to get money or something of value out of the company's accounting and approval systems. And so even where a company doesn't have an anti-corruption compliance program or where they haven't conducted investigations or audits, it is possible 
to examine historical expenses or historical marketing or sales or permitting or licensing practices and see the kind of money that are spent on those in an effort to assess what the business risks are and match against those risks, whether there are areas of expenditures that even if you're not going to get down into the details of what they are, where they look out of whack. And, you know, some, sometimes people who are doing this diligence sort of, they'll do the financial diligence with a great deal of common sense, and then they'll turn to the anti-corruption diligence, and that common sense doesn't always carry over. And so, you know, if you have a company that's very sophisticated about its own marketing budget and its own marketing expenses in comparison to sales, and they're looking at a target, they should look to see whether those ratios are similar or different, because if they're, if they're out of whack, that might be a sign that there's something in those marketing expenses that could warrant further scrutiny, even if you're not talking about a highly developed compliance program. I worked on one acquisition a number of years ago where, I mean, the basic information available about the target was pretty sparse. And so we almost literally got down to looking at cash in, cash out. And, you know, how much money was this business making overall in revenue? And what was it spending on cost of goods sold and, you know, SG&A? And looking at those to see whether it looked like there were any, you know, to be colloquial, any big buckets of money that were unexplained going out the door and doing the risk assessment that way. That's, that's not ideal, but it does mean that even with limited information, I think you can get an assessment of what you're trying to buy. Uh, you, you make some really good points and you know, a couple of them are, you know, bear repeating. One is you know, the organization has, has business records, has a disbursements journal, maintains records of expenses you know, submitted for reimbursement, you know, gifts, travel, and entertainment. You know, and who are the third parties, you know, how many of them are intermediaries, and then also kind of looking at, you know, the customer base. What is the universe of government touch points that, you know, exist across the enterprise that could give rise to FCPA liability? And now that we know, you know, what the touch points are across the enterprise, how are we engaging with them? Are any of them things that we should think about walling off or maybe, you know, cutting from the herd pre-close because, you know, the last, you know, buyer relationship has already been poisoned in some way. Great. So for certain types of organizations, sales agents, distributors, and resellers are the channels through which most of the company's sales are completed. Is it advisable to perform background investigations of the maybe the top echelon sales agents, distributors, and resellers as part of pre-acquisition due diligence? And you know, the other part of that question is what are the risks in not doing so? It's certainly advisable and there are there are serious risks in not doing so. And the statistics vary from year to year on the percentage of anti-corruption enforcement actions that involve a sales agent, distributor, or reseller, but it's always very, very high. It remains the case that the most common mechanism for money to leave a company for an improper purpose is to go through uh, an intermediary or a third party. And so I think in many acquisitions, if you're talking about an entity where there's significant government sales, that the resellers, distributors, and agents are probably the highest risk area. So it has to be done. And again, I think it's one where the acquirer can and should leverage the information it has around its own 
businesses. So obviously, you know, this is easier to do for a strategic buyer than it is for equity or private equity or an investor. But in any event, there will be frequently information available to a company about the kinds of agents that are common in the business line that they are buying into. And so, you know, for example, as I'm sure you have, we've been involved in acquisitions where you have a, you know, you have a healthcare company looking at another healthcare company and they're looking and, and the, health, the acquirer has a list of distributors around the world. Well, the, the, the low hanging fruit is to take the targets list and compare those two lists and see what the outliers are. And frequently they'll be within the acquirer's own organization information about who in, in various markets are reputable and who to stay away from. And, and it may be a challenge because those people who have that information may not necessarily already be on the business development team or on the, the M&A team that's doing the acquisition, but accessing that information is an efficient way. Doing that initial diligence of the, the dealer, distributor, and reseller list and then the other thing is, Scott, you can speak to this better than I can. This is another area where the, the services have evolved greatly over time. And, you know, when we tried to find people who would do the business intelligence on this 15 or 20 years ago, it was very difficult. Now, there's much more robust processes in place, information available, and standardized reporting that comes out of that process. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. You know, in the last 15 years, it's become much more mainstream. And the other thing that I, that I think is important to emphasize is 15, 20 years ago, asking a trusted intermediary in, a, in certain geographies to complete a detailed questionnaire and submit to a background investigation and maybe even speak to investigators, just not something that was done. Uh, there was concern about offending people, whether it's just, you know, culturally considered to be inappropriate to ask certain types of questions or just like an imposition, particularly for these longstanding relationships. Whereas now, I think expectations have changed. Most global multinationals above a certain size have some manner of third-party anti-corruption program in place such that the whole notion of submitting to a background, completing a questionnaire is, is expected. And I think that makes it a little easier. You know, listen, there's still some pretty opaque <laughs> markets out there uh, and, and still some pretty entertaining stories about uh, who the beneficial owners are of some of these third parties, but at least it's, it's become more mainstream. I, I would agree with that. Well, that, that's a really good point. And actually, you know, it, you highlight the divide now between those companies that are willing or those third parties that are willing to subject themselves to that diligence and the ones that aren't are not. And it means that the ones that are not in the current environment, that would present even more of a red flag than it might have several years ago, because it turns out that, you know, the statement of like, well, it, that it's just not done that way in this country is really no longer acceptable. And it will be viewed certainly by a regulator as avoiding the diligence rather than a, a legitimate reason not to do it. Yeah, I'm glad with this change that my field investigators get detained by law enforcement less often. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have received many calls over the years of like, we have your man here prone down on the hood of our, our police vehicle. Can you vouch for his uh, bona fides? I'm like, yeah, if you wouldn't mind uh, unshackling him. Yes, he, he does in fact work for me. And I apologize for him having taken photographs in a part of the city that it's impermissible <laughs> to take photographs and feel free to confiscate the, the disc. And <laughs> This is, uh, Scott, why I rely on people like you to, to do that diligence. We, we do have a rule that the lawyer doesn't go to jail. 
Yeah, we know. Our, you know, for us, it's more of a guideline. But, uh, <laughs> during a lot of in- investigations, you know, of course, you know, hindsight is is very uh, instructive. Poorly integrated acquisitions may be uh, exacerbated by multiple ERP systems that are in place, internal control environments that aren't talking to each other. You know, sometimes they play a very significant role in how problematic conduct was able to continue undetected. After the deals close, what strategies can companies employ to make sure that post-merger integration of the compliance programs is performed not only timely, but it's properly resourced and is likely to mitigate the risk of success or liability? That's a really good question as, as a practical matter because frequently the team that is overseeing the deal diligence is not the same team that is going to be doing the post-acquisition integration. And with all due respect to business development departments at large companies around the world, they get excited about their acquisitions and their goal is to complete the acquisition. And then once it's done, they move on to something else. And if, if all of the good diligence and learning that came out of the acquisition process stays locked up with the deal team, it's actually going to lead to exactly the issue that you've identified, which is the integration will not be done based on all the good work that was done beforehand. So to your question about, well, how do you solve that? I mean, the first and easiest to say, but certainly sometimes challenging to do, is make sure that that information flow continues. And, you know, one very practical technique that I've seen used is that as part of the diligence leading up to signing and closing, there is a a remediation step plan that is prepared. So it's not just here are the findings out of the diligence, but here are the things that specifically need to be done uh, to remediate and to do the integration. And then that step plan is handed over to the group that will be taking the integration forward. And, you know, frequently that'll be, the, it'll be a compliance legal audit. Making sure that those action items are identified and then transferred over after the acquisition is very important. I think that management training is hugely important and getting in front of the board, getting in front of the management to talk about the expectations of the integration and the going forward business. Management visits to perceived higher risk geographies to reinforce the commitment to compliance and the integration is important. And you know, we talked about doing anti post-close anti-corruption audits or diligence, part of the potential, you know, this Halliburton process. Sometimes that's done, sometimes you know, that's expensive and that's viewed as overkill. And and I recognize that may not be appropriate in every case that you do, you know, specific post-close anti-corruption audits as part of the integration. But if you're not going to do those, you're certainly going to be doing financial controls and internal controls audits. And so incorporate a compliance and an anti-corruption element into those audits. Have those audit teams trained when they're going out to the new, newly acquired entities that they're going to look at these risks and they're also going to talk to the management about them. Because you, as you say, there's a couple aspects of this. One of them is making sure that you're integrating things like the ERP systems, the accounting systems, the, the hard controls, 
The other one is making sure that your newly acquired management teams are aware of these risks and paying attention to them. Yeah, you know, you raise a great point. You know, on the you know FCPA due diligence that I've been involved in, I always like it when sort of the, the deliverables coming out of it is a, they have different names, but let's call them a compliance action plan. Where these are the findings that we have. These are the maybe the misgivings we have about the current anti-corruption compliance posture of, of the target entity. Here are the steps that we would like to see taken and by whom and when. And, and that, you know, sort of takes me also to kind of like, it's, it's very much like what, how internal audit would approach something. You know, they find gaps, they designate who in the organization is responsible for closing that gap and they give them a deadline. And those are great roadmap. And they also, because they're documented, because they're pretty specific, they can be passed around. So if it, you know, transitions from seller to now the, you know, the management team that maybe has come over in the deal, they still own it. Maybe they involve internal audit to hold them accountable. But, you know, those, those are great documents. And they're also something that you could point to. What steps did you take in the furtherance of uh, close integration? And, and those are great blueprints. So whether it's, you know, post-merger integration or, or standing up a program from the, from the ground up, inventorying government touch points amongst customers, uh, regulatory oversight, the issuance of permits, licenses, or registering products for sale in a given market, identifying and risk ranking third parties, particularly intermediaries, and the controls in place around hiring foreign officials and family members are, are all seem to be, you know, kind of central. You know, easy to say, uh, not as easy to accomplish in practice. What are some proven techniques to bring these kind of essential risk factors to the surface in in a post-close setting? To me, the most effective processes really start with clear and practical understanding of the business itself and then tailoring this information gathering around how the business works and then focusing on those touch points that do present risk versus don't. And, you know, as a sort of oversimplified example here, if you take the paradigmatic FCPA, you know, the reason that it was passed in the 70s for aerospace and defense, you know, the risks that those companies have are very large value orders with governments on a regular basis as part of their core business and tenders. Okay, so, you know, if you inventory that business, you're going to be looking primarily at the risks of tenders and meeting with high-level Defense Department officials in countries outside the United States. If you look at a retail business that's rolling itself out to 80 countries, they're can have a completely different risk profile. They're not selling airplanes, but they might be dealing with customs importation in a bunch of places. And so their touch points may be at a very low level of guys at a port or people in airports or getting goods cleared through customs. So you know you have to spend your time on the, the risks that are really relevant to the business. You can get that information from how the business works. I would also say don't neglect information that's available in published settlements that are relevant to the particular business. I've said for a number of years that the government expects 
the compliance department and the legal department at a company to know what that company's you know peers and competitors have gotten in trouble for and to be access, assessing risks accordingly. And um, I suppose the silver lining for the for companies on the fact that there have been a number of FCPA investigations over the last 15 years is that there is quite a bit of information if you delve into it about what the geographic risks are um, in different industry sectors. So if you are looking at energy and extractive business in Angola, there's several FCPA settlements you could look at to see what kind of government touch points have gotten companies in trouble. If you're looking at pharmaceutical and life sciences in Eastern Europe or in China, same idea. You can look at some you know, very specific settlements that'll talk about touch points to be careful of. That's true in the telecommunications industry. It's true in technology. It's true in, in retail. And I would say take advantage of, of that um, and develop a work plan on a risk assessment exercise and gather information based on that th those real and actual touch points and then use the other kinds of resources you may have available, such as internal audit reports, historical compliance policies, and historical training policies. That's a, a really, really good point. And you know, something that I've also kind of preached for years is look at your peer group, look at the enforcement actions you know, that have been taken against them, and then just sort of think about the fact that you have geographies in common with them, you have products in common with them, you probably have sales agents and distributors in common with them, which then kind of leads to the very likely scenario, some of those same third parties may actually be doing some of the same things that they did for the defendant company on your behalf. And you just haven't, you know, that, that shoe, that particular shoe hasn't dropped yet. Cause you know, sometimes it really does. It's hard to kind of get them past the fact that, well, it wasn't us, you know, and like, well, it could have been, let's look at the parallels between you and that other company and you make the business case as to why you don't need to look at that, you know, when there isn't a, you know, a gun screwed into your ear than when there is. So one uh, last point, and we touched upon this a little bit, a question or two ago, you know, the whole notion of pre-close, you know, having a compliance remediation plan, that's an outgrowth from the acquisition due diligence. What happens after the deal closes and the remediation plan hasn't been acted upon or it hasn't been fully acted on? You know, I, I think that's it's a very interesting and practical uh, question. And, and I would say if it, it happens commonly enough that I think that's something that sh should be in a way, priced into the risk of the deal when the people who are assessing risks in this area, the lawyers, the compliance professionals are, are looking forward and talking to management and talking to the board about the potential transaction. I think you raise a really good point about let's preview that case that we identify a bunch of things and then we do the acquisition. But for whatever reason, including you know, that you may have the best of intentions, something doesn't go right with the remediation plan. And because best case scenario is, well, as soon as you find out that that happened, pick it up and start it again and then do it. I'm not sure I have a more creative answer than that. Um, but then what you're really getting at is, well, how do you mitigate the risks that come from that occurrence? And I think it is best mitigated by previewing in advance and having very candid assessments of what the costs of the diligence into the remediation into, you know, what would happen if there 
would be an investigation and what kind of costs there will be to any business modifications that need to be made post-acquisition. So the most successful of these exercises that I've seen are ones where ex-ante, there's as candid as possible a conversation about the risk that you raise, where people say, okay, here are the remediation steps that we're expecting. Here are the the kinds of marketing activities that we saw during the diligence that they can't do post-close. Here are the list of distributors and sales agents that are going to have to be curtailed after close, or this is the, you know, this is this country, we're going to have to hit reset. We're going to have to exit and find a new business partner and or relicense the product and then go back in. And to me, that's the best way to guard against the idea that your hoped for remediation doesn't happen during the period between signing and closing, because you've essentially sort of game that out in advance. You've sensitized your business team that they should be taking that into account in pricing the transaction. And then hopefully when closing comes and you're presented with that scenario, it may be a surprise, but it's less of a unplanned for negative costly downside. No, that's that's a great last point to make in terms of just, you know, factoring in the cost of remediation until your purchase price into the you know the overall transaction which is i think becoming more commonplace but i still think in some instances it, there are companies that get blindsided by that down the road so gary that's all the time we have today you've shared really great insights this has been terrific thanks so much for your time today thanks for having me so that was gary DiBianco, partner in the uh, government enforcement and white collar crime practice at skadden arps This concludes this episode of Fraudy Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Fraudy Strategy when we'll hear from former Tyco Chief Compliance Officer Matt Tanzer offering his advice on how to critique senior leadership and live to tell about it. If you have an idea on a fraud or corruption case topic or guest you'd like to hear about in a future episode, email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks again for listening.